As summer's bright rays bring these long days to a peak, the sound of birdsong along the old battlefields diminishes at this time of year. The dawn chorus has passed. But in the woodland, as we walk the western front, the chiff-chaff still sings in the trees. It's summer on the battlefields. Welcome to the old front line. With me, military historian Paul Reed. Each week I bring you a glimpse of the Great War and we walk together across the battlefields from Ypres to the Somme and beyond. So it's time to head out again, take our pack, strap on our boots and walk out onto the old front line. We're back in Flanders this week and we're about two miles east of the Menin Gates, the memorial on the edge of the city of Ypres, where at eight o'clock each evening the last post is sounded. We're on the Menin Road, the old Roman road that links the city of Ypres with the town of Menin and runs right through the main area of the battlefields, where for those four years four major battles were fought and many other actions besides, and a quarter of a million British and Commonwealth soldiers died here. Roughly one in every four of those who died in the war fell here at Ypres. So this is one of Britain's most important battlefields from the Great War. Where we are now on the Menin Road, ahead of us the ground rises towards the little hamlet of Hoog. Beyond that is the Gellervelt Plateau and the Menin Road Ridge. Behind us is the city of Ypres. Over to our left, the Bellowada, and beyond that the Frasenberg, and eventually the Pilkelm Ridges. The guard the approaches to the village of Passchendaele, where the third Battle of Ypres was fought in 1917. But we're going to turn off of the Menin Road onto a new road, a road that didn't exist at the time of the Great War, a road that was built in the post-war period to take the battlefield visitor like us up to the Canadian Memorial on Hill 62, and more of that later in the walk. This tree-lined avenue that we're coming onto is Canada Lawn, as it is on modern maps, Canada Street, or Maple Avenue as it was once known, and indeed it is planted with native Canadian trees. We'll follow it as it winds up towards the crest of Hill 62. A little bit further along we'll stop and look across to our left, and here across the great flat fields we can see a gentle rise beyond towards that hamlet of Hoog and the large Hoog Crater Cemetery. Beneath it there's a triangular shaped field, and there in 1915 was the site of Zouave Wood. Zouave was a French colonial soldier and the French had fought here in 1914 and early 1915 and the battlefield was still covered with some of their dead and it was said that the wood had got its name like that from the brightly dressed Algerians whose shattered bodies were scattered across this corner of Flanders fields. We'll continue until we reach the British cemetery on the right hand side. This is Sanctuary Wood British Cemetery. By 1916 there were three cemeteries in this area just behind the second line of trenches beneath the high ground of Hill 62. In June of that year the Canadians fought a major engagement here defending this ground against German attacks and the cemeteries in the tremendous bombardments were obliterated by shellfire and very little trace of the graves that were here remained. By 1918 there were 137 burials at this site that were marked. This included 41 Canadians from June of 1916 and one German, and we'll come back to him later on. 
But as we walk up the steps and go through the main archway entrance, we come into the main area of the cemetery. It's in a sort of a fan shaped with row after row of orderly graves. And these are the men that were moved in after the war from all over the battlefields. Over 1,800 burials were exhumed from sites right across the Ypres salient and indeed as far away as Newport up on the Belgian coast and brought in here for burial. And the cemetery remained open until the early 1930s. We'll walk through the post-war concentration plots towards the back of the cemetery. And the thing that we noticed here is that the graves are staggered. They're not in any sort of order. There are big gaps. Headstones are at different angles to each other. And this is the original plot one, some of the original burials of the cemetery. There are a lot of special memorials here, which we can see along the rear wall of the cemetery. And those are not actual graves. There's no one buried underneath those headstones. They are memorials that commemorate men known to be buried in this area of plot one, but the exact location of their graves could not be ascertained or could not be found when the burial parties moved across here in the post-war period. In this original burial plot, we will see Canadians with dates of death from June of 1916, with the battle around Hill 62. There are also men from the Light Division who fought at Zouave Wood. When we were walking down here, we saw that triangular field up towards Hoog, where Zouave Wood had once stood. And there are five officers from the 6th Battalion, Duke of Cornwall's Light Infantry, who were killed in the fighting for that wood, and whose graves are now in this cemetery. Also, from that same period of the fighting buried here, is the grave of Lieutenant Gilbert Talbot of the Rifle Brigade. Both the 7th and 8th Battalions of the Rifle Brigade were very heavily involved in the fighting between Hoog, Zouave Wood and Sanctuary Woods during that use of flamethrowers by the Germans in July of 1915. This was the first credited use of flamethrowers against British troops in the war. Sometimes it's often described as the first use of flamethrowers, but, but that isn't correct. These were in use from the very beginning of the war. They were technology that existed before the First World War. And the Germans, for example, used them against some of the French fortifications not far from Verdun as early as September of 1914. But this was probably, and I say probably, the first use of them against the British. In a previous podcast, we were on the cinder track at Rishborg, and in the attack there in 1915, Colonel Langham of the 5th Royal Sussex records some of his men being hit by what he describes as an acid sprayer. Now, he was probably not aware of what a flamethrower was, so to him, seeing men burning, he probably would have associated that with acid. So it could be that they were used in May of 1915 down on the Albers Ridge. But certainly this is the first use of them credited as being flamethrowers. So back to Gilbert Talbots of the Rifle Brigade. We're standing in front of his grave now. He was the son of the Lord Bishop of Winchester. He had an elder brother, Neville Talbot, who was an army chaplain. And he'd fought in the Boer War of 1899-1902. to when Gilbert was a young boy, he worshipped his elder brother, and it was said that he became an expert on the Boer War, that he knew every battle, every engagement, every commander, every regiment. And like many young men of that class, he was educated privately at Winchester and then went on to Christchurch College. When the war broke out, he joined the Rifle Brigade, he got a commission, and he served with the 7th Battalion. He came across to France with them in 1915, and given the life expectancy of young officers who led by example, it's not surprising to learn that he was killed in his first major engagement. We have a first-hand account of his death, and that reads as follows. Gilbert died leading his men. No one could have done more. All the men of his company were very much attached to him, and when we heard in the middle of the action he had been hit, several men at once volunteered to go and bring him in, although the enemy's fire was still very heavy. 
Two lots started, but as the men in each were hit, the attempt had to be given up. To us he is a great loss, as he was always in good spirits and cheery, and had something amusing to say. He was buried here after the action, quite likely with other men from his battalion, killed in that fighting, but whose graves were later destroyed in the battles of 1916. But the significance of Gilbert Talbot is not necessarily this grave or the battle in which he died. It is really more to do with the outcome of actions by his brother and his good friend, fellow padre, Tubby Clayton. Together in the town of Popperinger, behind the lines in Flanders, they wished to establish a place that soldiers could come to, to get away from the war, to have a bit of peace and quiet, a refuge from the life that they were living at the front. And they managed to acquire a Belgian townhouse in Popperinger and looked to name it. At first they thought Church House was a good name because they were both padres. But Tubby Clayton was a realist. He thought that if men associated the house with just the church, it might put some off. So the idea came about to name the house after Gilbert Talbot, and Talbot House was born. Today it is still there, and it will be the subject of a future visit on this podcast. And here we are standing in front of the grave of Gilbert Talbot, and as we look to our right we're almost casting a direct line across to Talbot House, the house named after him, a house which thousands and thousands of fellow soldiers knew and loved during those years of the Great War. History sadly has a habit of repeating itself because here we are looking at the grave of Lieutenant Gilbert Talbot of the Rifle Brigade and there is another grave of another Lieutenant Gilbert Talbot of the Rifle Brigade. Neville Talbot married. He had two children and tragically his wife died in childbirth giving birth to their son who he named Gilbert in memory of his brother killed in Flanders in the Great War. This new Gilbert Talbot followed a similar path to his uncle, and by the time of the Second World War, he too enlisted. He joined the Rifle Brigade, he became a lieutenant, and he went to Normandy in June of 1944, where he was killed by mortar fire in the Bocage. He's buried in a little communal cemetery on the outskirts of Bayeux, a row of men from his battalion who died with him that day. So two headstones, both lieutenants, both with the badge of the Rifle Brigade, two Gilbert Talbots. Two wars, two great battles, two great tragedies. The suffering that some families had that stretched across both world wars is almost impossible to comprehend sometimes. One other grave we'll look at before we leave here is of a German soldier, a German aviator in fact, Hans Rosa. He flew in a reconnaissance squadron that was flying over the British lines, taking air photos and noting down the movements of British troops and their locations. He was dived upon by Major Lano Hawker, of the Royal Flying Corps. At this stage in the war, air-to-air combat was relatively rare, but Hawker had strapped a Lewis machine gun on the side of his aircraft so it didn't fire straight through the propeller and obviously destroying the propeller and bringing the aircraft down. On the 25th of July 1915, and I often wonder whether Gilbert Talbot in the trenches between Hoog and Zouave Wood might have looked up and seen this engagement take place, Hawker was flying a, a combat patrol when he saw three German reconnaissance aircraft and he dived on them. The first one he hit and it spun out of control. The second one he hit again and he forced it to land. And the third one he shot down. And Rosa was killed when he fell from his aircraft. It's not known whether he fell out of the cockpit or whether he jumped. 
I remember talking to a, a veteran, a flyer of the Royal Flying Corps at Gifford House in Worthing, and uh, he said that he saw several of his friends plummet to their death not wishing to be in aircraft that were on fire and going down in those aircraft on fire, a truly gruesome, terrible death. So the exact circumstances of Hans Rosa's death is not known, except that he died here on this day. Hawker was eventually awarded the Victoria Cross for his bravery in this action, the first RFC pilot to be awarded the VC for shooting down an enemy aircraft. A year or so later, he was flying combat patrols over the Somme. In October of 1916, he came up against von Richthofen, the Red Baron, and following what must have been one of the longest air-to-air combats, he was shot down and killed. He was buried close to a farm, not far from the village of Ligny-Tilloy on the Somme, but after the war, following the, the fighting there at the end of the Battle of the Somme, and again in 1918, his grave could not be found, so Lano Hawker is commemorated by name on the Flying Services section of the Arras Memorial. Leaving the cemetery, we'll go back towards the shelter entrance and walk across to our right where the cemetery wall ends and there's a little gap where you can walk out onto the road. But before we do that, just as we come out on our left-hand side is a memorial cross to Lieutenant Thomas Keith Headley Ray of the 8th Battalion of the Rifle Brigade, the sister battalion to Gilbert Talbot's, killed in the same fighting on the 30th of July 1915. Like Talbot's, he was educated privately and then at Balliol College. There's a fantastic photograph of him in the Balliol College Roll of Honour, which I'll put onto uh, the podcast website, oldfrontline.co.uk. He then went on to become a teacher at Marlborough College, and that, that was his job on the outbreak of war in 1914, when he too was commissioned in the Rifle Brigade, came across to the Western Front and was killed in his first action. Now, this is not his grave. He does not have a known grave. His name is on the Menin Gate Memorial in Ypres. And this memorial was one of probably nearly a 100 such memorials scattered along the British sector of the Western Front to men like him, mainly those who had no known grave. Uh, and these were monuments erected by families before memorials like the Menin Gate and Thiep Vale and the Luz Memorial were ever built. They were an interesting phenomena in the post-war period because almost exclusively these were men whose family had money and could afford to buy land and build monuments like this. And they were done as an expression of mourning to memorialise a man who had to all extents and purposes completely disappeared. He'd become one of the many missing soldiers across these battlefields of the Great War. At that stage, families didn't know what the government really would do with missing soldiers. Men like that had never been commemorated in previous wars. But this war would be different, and nearly 50% of the dead on almost any battlefields had no known grave. So one of the ideas the Commission, the War Graves Commission, put forward was eventually to commemorate them on monuments like the Menin Gate. This memorial once stood in the grounds of the Hoog Chateau on the lip of a mine crater many years ago, my old friend Tony Spagnoli showed me a photograph of the original monument sitting on the lip of this crater. But sometime in the 1970s, when the, the ownership of the land there changed, it was moved to its present location, slightly away from its context, but now lovingly cared for by the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission. We'll continue along the road now and walk up to the museum that we'll see on our right-hand side. The big panel saying Hill 62 the Schneider field gun outside, the benches, the tables, the cafe, and we'll go on in. This is Sanctuary Wood 
Trench Museum. It is the last of the old trench museums. So in some respects, this museum is a museum piece in its own right because it bears testimony to the interwar period, the battlefield pilgrimages that took place and the desire for locations like this to exist. Because when people returned after the war, they too, like modern visitors to the battlefields, wanted to see trenches. So just after the war, a member of the Shear family purchased the wood, preserved the trenches within, and it soon became one of the most visited places on the Western Front battlefields in that interwar period. And when battlefield tourism took off again in this region, once more it attracted a huge number of visitors. I first came here in the summer of 1982 with my school. And for us, and for me, it was a formative experience really, because having read so much about the war in the trenches, to actually be able to come in and walk through these trenches, to wade through the mud, to go through the tunnels, this was just an incredible experience. And I think that it's one of the reasons why many, many school groups come here. In the museum itself, there's quite an eclectic array of artefacts almost jumbled together. There's no sense of chronology or arrangement by type or nationality. But nevertheless, there's no doubting that this is an important collection of Great War artefacts. There are the stereoscopic viewers here that many people think are unique. Actually, they were produced by a company in France and sold to quite a few such museums and battlefield locations in the interwar period. When you sit and look into what people often describe as what the butler saw type contraptions, you get a glimpse into the tragedy of the First World War and the brutality of it as well. There are images, for example, showing horses up in trees, and that's one of the nicer ones. And I often warn people uh, the explicit nature of some of the photographs here. But it's important to see them, important to understand the reality of war uh, and the terrible nature of war and what it can do to men and animals and indeed landscapes. Going out into the woods, that's where we see the trenches. And there are many, perhaps more cynical than I, who believe these trenches to be fake, to be dug, redug. The reality is that they are original. Um, there's some great LIDAR images of the area around Sanctuary Wood and you can see this crescent-shaped trench with two sections of communication trench. Some years ago when Great War Digital first brought out the Linesman product I mapped the trenches in the wood here using that, using the little handheld map viewer that we had with GPS in those days. And it was quite clear that these trenches matched trenches that existed on the maps from that period. When you look at these map sources you see that the main section of trench here was Hill Street Trench. The main communication trench was Fort Trench and a small section of communication trench that comes in from the edge of the wood into what looks like the back of the trench was Border Lane. Now what we've got here is a second line position. This is the support line. The front line, when we stand here in the trenches, look through the trees of the wood up towards the Canadian Memorial on Hill 62. That's where the front line was located. Front line, support line, reserve line. So we're on the support line, front line ahead of us on the hill, reserve line behind us back towards the village of Zillabeek which we can just see across the fields through the edge of Sanctuary Wood. And as we walk through these trenches we see they're lined with modern corrugated iron which replicates the, the wobbly tin, the elephant iron used by the British Army during the war. It, they're missing sandbags, they're missing all the wooden revitments that would have been here and they are not much more on many days uh, than muddy ditches, but they give us an insight, I think, into the experience of trench warfare 
and the nature of actual trenches. Because if these were fakes, this would be an easy set of trenches, one zigzag trench, perhaps even a straight trench. But there are many features within the wood, within these trenches, that are clearly original. Bays for machine guns, for trench mortars, that anybody trying to fake this probably would not have had any idea what they looked like or what those features were. When you're this close to the enemy, and if you look to your left as you walk along the line of trenches, through the trees towards the Canadian Memorial, the, the Germans were just up there, when you're this close to the enemy, sometimes you have to go underground and there is a section of tunnel here, original tunnel built by the Royal Engineers that once took men from this trench up towards the frontline positions on Hill 62. So for me as a teenager visiting these trenches for the first time, even today as a middle-aged man I come back here and they have exactly the same sort of impact. This is an impressive place and a place that should be on the itinerary of anyone coming to the battlefields for the first time, and especially school groups, to get an understanding of what the trenches were and what the experience of trench warfare was like. We'll leave the museum. We're going to come back here for a podcast. When I'm able to travel to the battlefields again, I'm going to take my portable recorder with me and walk some of these places live, as it were, with you. So we'll come back here and we'll have a proper explore of these trenches. But for now, we'll leave the museum We'll walk up the hill to the crest of Hill 62. From the top here we can see that the landscape in this area is a bit more rolling than we normally associate with Flanders fields. But on a good day we can see straight into Ypres itself and it, and it again reinforces this importance of high ground on a battlefield like this. The Canadian memorial here commemorates the Battle of Mount Sorrel. On the 2nd of June 1916, German Württemberger troops launched a major attack on the British positions, then defended by the 3rd Canadian Division in this area. Mines were blown under the Canadian positions from around the Menin Road near Hoog, right across the Sanctuary Wood. There was a terrific bombardment, flamethrowers were used and assault troops went in. The 3rd Canadian Division had not been in France that long. And in the fighting that ensued, they lost their divisional commander, who'd come up for a reconnaissance of the ground, Major General Mercer. He became the most senior British and Commonwealth officer to die in the salient during the war. But eventually, most of the ground was retaken, and this memorial commemorates more than 8,000 men from the Canadian Corps who died in this battle. So we stand here on this bit of high ground in Flanders Fields, only 62 metres above sea level. The chiff chaffs are singing in the trees... There's a summer breeze and we look out across this landscape, the last witness of the Great War, and can hardly believe that the war could ever have taken place. But here and there it gives up its secrets and we know that once again we're on the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. Do take time to subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Spotify or other podcast services. Tell us what you think using the hashtag OldFrontline. Follow me on Twitter at SOMCOR and have a look at the podcast website www.oldfrontline.co.uk I'll see you next week on the battlefields of the Great War.